Have you ever felt forgotten or ignored or left behind? Uh, my senior year at Mississippi State, 2004, I was the second string quarterback on the football team. We were three and seven going into the last two games of the year, Arkansas and Ole Miss. We finished three and nine. It, we weren't very good. And this was my last year. But something interesting happened those last two weeks that I, honestly I did not see coming. See, as the second string quarterback, when it was time in practice for the second string guys to run plays, I'd run up into the huddle and, you know, and quarterback the team. But on that Monday, as we prepared for Arkansas, I'm running toward the huddle and Coach McCorvey puts his hand out onto my chest and says, hold on, Kyle, let Mike take this one. Mike was the freshman third string quarterback. And I remember thinking, well, how nice. They're going to let the young guy get some, some experience. But then it happened again. And then again, and again, and it occurred to me, they're squeezing me out. They're getting the young guys ready for the future, and the older guys are moving to the back of the line. And that was a really difficult moment for me. And so, y'all, I spent the, the, the last two weeks of my football career standing back by the coolers, thinking to myself, this is the last free Gatorade I'm ever going to get. I drank a lot of Gatorade those last two weeks. I tried to make it worthwhile. Y'all, as we, as we finish John chapter 3 today, we come to this point, a point of, of potential conflict between two significant figures. One is Jesus. The other is a man named John the Baptist. Now, if you've been with us in these past few weeks, especially in chapter 1, we spoke at length about John the Baptist. He shows up prominently in chapter 1. Uh, but John the Baptist was what we call the forerunner of Jesus. He was a very important man with a tremendous role that God gave him to play. And so John the Baptist had a flourishing ministry prior to the beginning of Christ's ministry. Scores of people were coming out to him. He was ministering in the wilderness outside of the cities, and people were coming in droves to listen to John preach and to be baptized by him. Of course, he's the forerunner, meaning he's not the main event. Jesus is the main event. But John's ministry had been just absolutely um, powerful and popular. He was a huge deal among the people. Even those who hated him were intrigued by him. Everybody wanted to come and see John. Well, John begins, we saw it two chapters ago, he begins to point people to Jesus, away from himself and to Christ. But now we reach the critical moment, uh, if you want to call it the passing of the torch, where one ministry basically ceases to exist and the other flourishes in its place. Okay, John's about to bow out, and Jesus is going to take the spotlight. And that didn't sit well with everybody. Now, I want, I want to read the beginnings of this section here. This is John chapter 3, verse 22. Look at what happens here, especially as it concerns John's disciples. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he was spending time and, with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now let's stop there and, and kind of assess where we are. John the Baptist is still doing what God has commissioned him to do. He's calling people to repent, and he's baptizing. But now, Jesus, who has entered into his ministry, Jesus settles in a nearby place, and he is also baptizing. Now, we're going to find out uh, in John chapter 4, just a few verses later, we'll find out that Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing. It's his disciples who were doing it. But nonetheless, John's disciples come to him in a panic. This man that you've been pointing to, Jesus, he's now baptizing and everybody's going to him. And you can, you can almost hear it. In the, the words jump off the page. You can hear the despair in their voice. They're confused and they're threatened. John, what's going on here? You're losing your influence. You're going to be forgotten if this keeps up. Now, before we look at John's response, it helps me to remember, and I've got to do this consistently when I'm reading the Bible, I've got to remember that these were real people. You know, sometimes it's really easy to, to, to lose sense of the fact that this all happened in the world that we live in, and that these people are just like us. They're people. John the Baptist was a person, meaning he, they, the people in the Scripture, they had the same fears, same struggles, all the same sin issues that you and I have, Okay? And I've never met a person, not one time, who relished the idea of being a nobody, who loved the idea of being set aside, forgotten, washed up. Nobody would ever want that to be true of them. And so when we see John the Baptist, his disciples here are bringing a legitimate concern. People are still coming to him, but the crowds are dwindling, and everybody's now going to this other guy. What's the deal? See, this is what makes John's response so stunning to me. He is a real person. Certainly he was a sinner, and I'm sure he had an ego just like the rest of us do. But his response is just, is, is, it blows our minds, and it's something that we're going to spend a good bit of time looking at today. John's mind was so fixed on the person of Jesus that he took joy in the decrease of his own ministry rather than viewing it with resentment. Tim Keller calls this the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Another pastor named Ray Ortland calls it the joy of no big dealness. Okay, and that's what we see in John the Baptist. Look at, look at verse 27, John's response. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. I must decrease. There are few pictures in the Bible, or anywhere, for that matter, of humility quite like this one. This is one of the purest, most wonderful pictures of humility you're ever going to see. But if we look closer at what John's actually saying, we would never conclude, well, he's just a naturally humble guy. That's just who he is. 
No, the, the reason, the source, the, the foundation of John's humility is not how he looks at himself, but it's how he looks at Jesus. John's heart and mind are so God-saturated, so Christ-centered, that this is the only response he could have ever mustered. Because he has an understanding of things that his disciples in that moment did not have. And we see it right off the bat. Look again at verse 27. John's view of life. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Y'all, in other words, John is saying, all that I am, my ministry, my influence, my purpose, my eating and drinking, my breathing, everything that I am, it's all from God. I've received nothing that didn't come from the hand of God. It's from God, and ultimately it's for God. These things weren't mine to begin with. I received this ministry from heaven. Therefore, it's not mine to lose. One commentator says it like this, John, recognizing that ultimately it's God who determines the role a person has, was content with the ministry God had given him and felt no need to promote himself or compete with Jesus. He understood only from heaven do I have anything in the first place, and therefore there's no competition here between me and Jesus. There's no reason for me to try to hold on to the people that I have so that they might not leave me too. And y'all, I want to ask you this. How different your life might be, how different my life might look if verse 27 became an operating principle for us. If you and I looked at the whole world, at all of life, at every single thing through that lens, a person can receive nothing unless it is given from God. Think about how joyfully humble we'd all be. Think about how much more content we'd be, how much more courageous we'd be. If every single thing about my life, from my breath to my heartbeat, to my relationships, to my work, everything is ultimately the gift of God, and my, my, my job, my responsibility is to return it to him for his glory. Only what comes from heaven may we receive in the end. Everything is a gift. Think about how joyful we'd be if we believed that. And then John, see, if because he views the world that way, that's his life's uh, mantra, he redirects his disciples' concerns. You see it again in verse 28. I've told you guys, I'm not the Christ. I never claimed to be. I'm only the guy that came before him to be sent ahead of him. And then John gives us his true role as he understood it. And this is so neat. He considers himself the best man. You see what he says in 28? He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now that may seem like a strange illustration, but y'all, in the Old Testament, God is pictured as a husband to his people Israel. They are his bride and he is a faithful husband. In the New Testament, even more so in the New Testament, the church, us, we are called the bride of Christ. And the bridegroom then is Jesus and y'all, if you're a man especially, that may be kind of an uncomfortable image to think of ourselves as brides or as a bride. 
But the, the, I believe that the purpose in that, the scripture is trying to paint for us the most intimate possible picture, the most intimate, precious, fully known relationship a person can have is that of marriage. And Jesus the groom has come to take his bride. In, in Ephesians, we're told that he came to purify his bride and present her before him. That's what the church is in relationship to Christ. And so John says of this arrangement, Jesus coming for his bride, the church, he says, I get to be the best man. I'm the one who helps put the wedding together. I'm in charge of the arrangements. I prepare the way so that the groom can come in and be wed to his bride. And at the sound of the groom's voice, when it's time for the wedding to commence, John says, that's when my joy is full. I rejoice greatly. You know, this is, it's, it's, a, it's astonishing for me that John does not rejoice. Never once did we see him in the Bible rejoice over his own ministerial success, which would have been the easiest, most natural thing for him to do. He had tremendous success. At one time, he was the most important man, or at least the most intriguing man in all of Israel. And yet he doesn't rejoice in that. It's not his success. And because he didn't rejoice in his success that way, you know what else? He doesn't resent that it comes to an end. He doesn't resent the fact that it's curtains for him now and that Jesus gets to be the one with the spotlight. Because everything for John, everything in his heart and his life was centered on Christ and not on himself. That's why he says this famous phrase in verse 29, this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. I must decrease. God has given me my assignment. I've joyfully completed it. And now it is God's will. That must was not John's decision. That must is God's decision. God's will is for me to step aside and for Jesus to take center stage all by himself. He must. It's time. Y'all, this is not a concession speech. This is a victory speech. John is not a, a politician who's just been beat out in a runoff, and now he's got to gather his crowd together. Everybody's sad and tearful, and he's got to put on a brave face and explain why everything's going to be okay. That's not what's happening here. This is a victory speech. John's victory was found in Christ, and therefore his joy has been made full. And, y'all, if this seems strange to us, it's meant to because natural human wisdom would not come to a conclusion like this. Y'all, our natural human wisdom says, wait a minute, if I decrease, I will lose my joy. I'll cease to be significant. I'll be forgotten. I'll be yesterday's news. How can I find any happiness in losing what I had? But see, John doesn't look at life that way. And John doesn't look at Jesus that way. They're not competitors. It's not my way or his way. It's his way. And if you're smart, it's, it's, he's telling his own disciples, if you guys are smart, you'll go with him, not with me. He is the Christ. John sees no loss here in his dwindling ministry because of what is happening in its place. Christ has come. Y'all, the apostle Paul had this very same heart within himself. Yeah, one of my favorite scriptures comes from Philippians 3, where Paul says, I count all things to be loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Whatever it is in this world, Paul says, that might aim for my attention and affection, whatever it is that I might gain and hold in my hands or count as my benefits, it's all lost to me because I found Christ instead. He's the surpassing value. And so this is the principle that comes out of this scripture. The less we are exalted and the more Jesus is exalted, the happier we become. The less I fixate on me, the more I center my life on Christ, so my joy increases in kind. Now, I want to suggest to us that for a lot of us, we don't really believe that, at least not deep down, including me. Because I think for a lot of us, it, we, here's our mindset. We would never say this out loud, but in my own heart, if I really commit myself to follow Jesus, if I really give my life to Jesus, truly. Think about all the pleasures and experiences I'm going to miss out on, and I will lose my joy. If if I'm truly generous, if I'm really sincerely generous, so generous that it kind of hurts a little, I'm going to lose my security, and therefore I'll lose my joy. If I commit myself, if I take seriously the command of Jesus Christ, the great commission to give my life to making disciples then I'm going to have to forfeit my ambitions, my plans, my comforts, and I'm going to lose my happiness in the process. I've got to trade one for the other. And y'all, if there's any of that in your heart or in mine, it's built on this false assumption that true happiness is found somewhere in here. True happiness is found and must be found in self-exaltation, in becoming somebody rather than taking the path that John takes here. Understand, y'all, John's disciples were fully immersed in this way of thinking. They're looking at him. They're so concerned. They're worried, not just for him, but for themselves. You're losing your platform, your popularity. John, you're not as big a deal as you used to be. Aren't you worried about it? We're worried. What's going to become of us? I'm sure that's what they were thinking. And John says to them, I've lost nothing. I've lost nothing. Because Jesus has come. My joy is filled to the brim. It was all God's anyway. A man can have nothing. He can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. I haven't lost anything. Christ has come. He was John's Savior too. John needed a Savior just like you and me. Why wouldn't he be overjoyed at this? And see, I I really want this to stick. And even as I prepared this message this week, I, I prayed and am praying that this would stick in my own heart that we would deal with the question in front of us. John doesn't ask it directly, but his, his model, his example presents this for us. Is my understanding of joy based on my increase or on Jesus' increase? Or maybe we could ask it like this. Would it delight my heart if I got more of Jesus even if it meant less of everything else? Would it delight my heart to have more of Jesus, an increase of Jesus, even if it meant less of everything else? That's a difficult question, and it's meant to be difficult. But John embodies for us 
how we're meant to be. That if our life is centered on Christ, then there's no amount of decrease in the orbit that would make any difference to us if we had the sun in the center. Everything revolves around him. Y'all, if, if, if we would commit ourselves to that question, then maybe we would come to the place that King David came to for himself. One of my favorite scriptures from Psalm 16. Listen to how David viewed the Lord. He says to God, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And God, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Not outside of God, but in the person of God himself. How radically different would your life look if you really embraced this and didn't settle for anything less but the fullness of joy that comes only in Christ? That's why John's words are stunning to us. This isn't natural. It's supernatural. But it's how we all ought to be what we ought to strive to be. Now, y'all, as, as this chapter concludes, we get a, a hopefully a clearer sense of why this would be, that John didn't just esteem Jesus as um, incrementally better than him. You know, I'm a pretty good preacher, John says, but Jesus, man, he's really anointed. I've had a nice ministry, but Jesus, he's going to do better than me. That's not why John esteemed Jesus the way he did. He wasn't just a little better. And for us, when we talk about the source of our joy in life, it's not just that Jesus is a little better than the rest of the joys that we can experience. No, we're not talking about degrees of enjoyment here. We're talking about a different category of person. Jesus is God, and therefore he exists in his own category altogether. And that's what the last paragraph tells us. Look at what happens in verse 31. This is an explanation now of why Jesus is preeminent, why he's above. It says he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Well, John the Baptist was a great man. He was great among men, but he was a man. At the end of the day, he was a human being with a sinful nature. He was of the earth, we're told here. And this is one of the reasons why John scoffed at the idea that his ministry and Jesus' ministry could ever compete. There's no competition here, and nor would he desire a competition. No, Jesus is from above. He is God in the flesh, and therefore he is above all. He's preeminent. The thought of competing never entered John's mind. And now look again at verse 32. What he has seen, what Jesus has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Um, because Jesus has come from heaven, his testimony, his words are divine. He speaks the very words of God. And no one, this is interesting, no one, John says, receives his testimony. This is a callback to what we saw in chapter 1, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came into the world, but the world did not know him. No one receives his testimony. Now, we don't take this explicitly, uh, that no, actually, no, no person ever received Jesus' testimony. That's not true, and that's not the point. The point is that, by and large, the world does not receive Jesus 
and his words, even though God has come and God is the supreme voice. No one can outrank him. No one can raise their profile above him, and yet the world, by and large, does not receive him. But there are some who do. The very next phrase, but those who receive Jesus have set their seal to this, that God is true. Y'all, that means that if you trust Jesus, if you believe his words, your life certifies that God is true in all he says and does. To come to Jesus in faith is not just you saying, I believe, but in believing we are born again and now your life becomes a testimony in itself that God is true. When Jesus says earlier in John 3, you must be born again of the Spirit, that actually happens. And your life becomes the certification, the seal of God's truthfulness. Y'all see, to, to be a Christian does not mean that we simply agree with spiritual doctrines, that we agree with the words on the page. It means we're trusting in a person. God is true. Not merely what God says is true, of course, that comes with it. But it's God who is true. As he reveals himself through Jesus Christ, we trust him. We certify it by faith. And here's how we know we can. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He gives the Spirit without measure. What that means is God the Father gives the Spirit to Jesus the Son. Uh, it's also true that Jesus gives us the Spirit by faith, but that's not what is meant here. Um, we're talking about Christ and his possession of the Spirit. Y'all, back in chapter 1, John explains how he came to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. God told him who to look for. He said, look for the one to whom the Spirit descends, and when he descends upon this man, he will remain there. That's the Messiah. And John recognized Jesus that way. And see, up to this point, whenever we see the Holy Spirit active in the Bible, up to this time, throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit is given by God, always in limited measure, and for specific purposes. Always in limited measure and for specific purposes. But in Jesus Christ, the Spirit descends and remains. And here we see a man, Jesus, who is completely filled and entirely led at all times and in every way by the Holy Spirit without limit. And when we consider the ministry of Jesus, y'all, this is another sermon for another day. It's a cop-out to say, well, Jesus was God. Of course he could do all the things he did. And yes, he is God. But he also received the Spirit without measure. And it's intriguing to read through, especially the, the Gospel of Luke. When we read through the Gospels, we see the Spirit active in Jesus' life, active in his, in his overcoming of temptations, acti active in his healing ministry, active in his miracles. The Spirit is always present without measure because the father loves the son we're told and has given all things into his hand jesus did not come to the earth to be a good teacher he did not die on the cross to be a good example 
He is God himself come to save us. All things are in his hand. Everything he does, he does as God for our sake. And so I hope we can see why John, with joy, would say he must increase. He must. Not he must like I have no choice in the matter, but he must because why would we want anything else to be the case? There's nobody else like Jesus. There never was before, and there never has been since, and there never will be to come. He is the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God, come to reign forever over his kingdom. He must increase. He's preeminent. He's above all. And y'all, then, as as John chapter 3 ends, it ends, in a sense, with the same calling, the same declaration that we saw last week and that we see often in the Scriptures. Verse 36, here's the conclusion. If Jesus is this great, we must come to a point. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. And this is what it ultimately comes down to for John as he writes this gospel. He tells us time and again his desire that people might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Life is found only in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to make a crucial point here that we understand, because we talk about this every Sunday, about eternal life. Y'all, eternal life is not something merely that God gives us, like a person who might give you $100. It was in their account, and now it's in your account. Isn't that great? And of course, there's a sense in which When Jesus Christ dies, he accounts his righteousness to us. It's put into our account. Yes, that's true. But that's not purely what salvation is or what it means. That's not what eternal life ultimately is for us. It's not just a switching of of, um, debt and now surplus. Spiritual debt and now life. Look at how John says it. Now, this is later on, 1 John chapter 5. Listen, John is going to say essentially the same thing we just saw in verse 36, but just in a different way. He says the testimony is this. Here's the gospel. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You see what that's saying there? All of the eternal riches of God's grace and kindness toward us come in relationship with his son Jesus. That's why John says the life is in the son. See, we're talking about a kind of life that does not come to us naturally. We don't possess it within ourselves and we've just got to activate it. We can't earn it or achieve it. It's something that we have to receive. We receive not just information. We receive not just um, an exchange of bad for good, we, ex- we, re- we receive a person. The life is in the Son. We enter into that by faith in a person. And the alternative, John has, has said it now twice, the alternative is to remain in death. Last week we saw the judgment of God remains. Today we see that the wrath of God remains. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains or abides on him. We've mentioned this now several times. It just keeps coming up, so we're going to talk about it when we see it. Human beings don't exist in a neutral state. That's how most of us tend to think. I tend to think that way. 
Most people are decent, or at least average, somewhere in the middle. Some people are bad, but they're, they're the exception to the rule. Most of us are at least kind of neutral. We just kind of live in the comfortable middle, and if we try really hard, we can be exceptionally good. But that's not the message of the Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and because God is holy and righteous, God will not sweep our sin under the rug and pretend it away. He can't. Even if he was a, a, a mushy, um, lovesick grandfather who just desperately wanted someone to come visit him. And that's us, right? And if, and if God's really lucky, we'll pay him some attention periodically. And so he doesn't really care what we do. He just wants our attention. He just wants our affection. See, that's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does not need us. And he is holy and righteous altogether. He will not leave sin unpunished. Or else he would lose his righteousness. He would forfeit his justice. He will not do it. And so to those who are in sin, the wrath of God remains on us. The holy response of God towards sin is something that is inescapable unless God should have mercy on us. And y'all, I hope you know that he has. God sent his son. He gave his son so that by no atoning works of our own, but only by faith in him, we might be rescued from the wrath of God. We might be saved from his righteous judgment, the judgment that we deserve, because Jesus took our judgment for us in our place on the cross. God did not suspend his judgment so that he could forgive us. Judgment was satisfied in Christ so that we might not be condemned as we deserve, but he was condemned in his flesh. We now receive all the grace that he came to give simply by trusting him. Is that a sweet deal? I didn't finish the sentence. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift through the blood shed on our behalf. Y'all remember the first thing John the Baptist says in this scripture today. A person can receive nothing unless it's given him from God. And y'all, maybe he was only thinking of his own ministry in that statement, but think how broadly that reaches. A person can receive nothing unless it's given from heaven. And y'all, we're right where we sit. That's the defining reality of our lives. And the most significant thing God could possibly give to us, salvation, grace, relationship with him in his son Jesus that never ends. We may receive it from heaven as a free gift because he's loved us. Everything depends on his grace and his grace has not been withheld from us. We may receive it as a free gift by faith. And so having received him, if you are a Christian, if you have received Christ, and you know this good news, and it's good to you, it's sweet to you, I hope it is, then may we take as our anthem for life what John said with no hesitation or resentment. He must increase. I must decrease. That's where my joy is truly found. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning for myself, and I pray certainly for us in this room, for those watching at home,
that we, Lord, would forsake any false assumption that our joy is found by looking within ourselves, that our joy may be found in our own achievements, in the approval of others, in our own self-esteem, that if I could just become somebody, that I'd be okay. Father, help us to see that that is bankrupt. And especially, Lord, we see that it's empty in light of what we're offered in its place. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. The one who is above all, and yet who took on flesh and became a servant of all to lay down his life for us. Father, let the increase of our joy be found in the increase of Jesus Christ. The more we know him, the more we study his word, the more we seek to treasure him and obey him and delight in him, that we would find fullness of joy, even as King David said, because it's found in your presence, Lord, and nowhere else. Father, thank you for the example of John, a man like us, who was so Jesus-saturated that he did not fear the loss of his own awesomeness. But it was the awesomeness of Jesus Christ that gave him his life's mission and his joy. Let that be true for us. As we believe in him, that we would delight hearing his voice. Now our joy has been made full. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.